Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Bill Barnwell Show. Before we get into today's episode, wanted to quickly tell you about another ESPN podcast. As you may or may know, not only is the NBA season underway, but NBA trade season is underway. Of course, the James Harden trade was this week. If you want to find out more about everything that's happening in the NBA, there's one person to go to, and that is Adrian Wojnarowski, the NBA insider for us at ESPN and the Woj Pod. You can get the inside scoop on all the biggest NBA news, as well as the biggest names in the game joining Woj on the podcast. There's in-depth conversations, breaking news reaction and analysis, and coverage of the biggest events on the NBA calendar, plus the occasional deep dive to some of the most notable events in NBA history. So hear it from the man himself. Make sure to download and subscribe to the Woj Pod, as well as the Bill Barnwell Show, this very show that you're listening to on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. Now, we have Will Brinson of CBS joining us to talk about the big coaching news and previewing these four divisional round games. Take it away, Will. All right, joining me now, as promised, a frequent contributor to the Bill Barnwell Show, one of the best in the business, Mr. Emergency Podcast himself. But this is no emergency. This is just a regular podcast. But always excited to have our friend Will Brinson on the show. Will, how are you? Bill, what's going on, man? Uh, you know, I, I got to say that... I feel as, and look, the emergency podcast was not my idea in the first place. I just played along with it. Uh, my boss, Eric K came up with the idea and I've noticed that it is now sort of a thing that everyone does. And I'm not saying that EK created it, but you know, I'm just, just saying that there's like, I saw, um, the, the wonderful guys at no dunks Inc had an emergency podcast for James Harden being traded, certainly warranting it. But I just, I think it's interesting how it's just part of the, sort of part of the way we operate with podcasts now. The the, the market saturation with 300,000 new podcasts a month was not mm-hmm. enough. We need emergency podcasts now from everyone. You're a specialist. Well, I mean, I feel like that's your, like now I expect when a, a big thing happens, I'm going to be able to hear Will Brinson talking about it like a half hour later. Well, you know, actually, you know what we've, we're going to start doing now during these coaching things. And you and I were talking about you know, availability and, and work requirements when news breaks and all that. Uh, we have basically migrated to like, in fact, we, we knew that urban Meyer and I'm sure we'll talk about it was going, is going to get hired by the Jaguars. Um, and we found that out on Thursday morning, mm-hmm. but the reason we didn't go ahead and record an emergency podcast for it, even though we had the, the people ready to do so is that they want us to be live wow. on like live streaming um, on Twitch and YouTube when we do these emergency podcasts. So what, a, I mean, what a, what a world. I didn't, didn't see this coming 10 years ago. You know what this is going to end with, Will? 
you're just going to be on air 24 seven. And whenever anything NFL <laughs> happens, they're just going to turn your mic on and you're going to be expected to talk about it. I, it's a, it'll be a 24 hour zoom call year round, 365 days. And you have like me and Tom Fernelli on there. And if it's a college football news, you get Tom, if it's a soccer news, you get Tom, whatever it is, you poke me, uh, you know, you just have everybody, each company will be doing it. You'll just, that'll be your, that'll be television in the year 2050. Is you just log into a Zoom call run by ESPN, and and when NFL news happens, Bill Barnwell and, and Mina Kimes jump up and talk about it. The eternal stream is what it'll be oh eventually. I we have a lot to talk about. We're going to preview the playoff games. We're still going to do that, but two big stories to discuss here. And like you said, one of them is still in progress. I think it seems fair to say that by all accounts. Within the next several hours, uh, maybe by the time you guys hear this, Urban Meyer will be the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. So, Will, let's start there. If we're assuming that Urban Meyer is going to take this job, what are your initial thoughts? How do you feel about the idea of Urban Meyer becoming the head coach of the worst team in football? Well, I'd, I'd say this too, Bill. If for some reason... Urban Meyer is not the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Mm-hmm. We'll probably, I'll probably have done an additional emergency <laughs> pot. emergency. <laughs> I mean, it just means that something was going horribly awry. You know, we saw on Thursday morning, uh, everybody, various insiders around the NFL, uh, um, cognoscente to borrow a word from Dan Hansis there, uh, <laughs> you know, leaked out that Urban was going to be the coach. It's happening. Yada, yada, yada. Everybody get ready. Deal is coming later on Thursday. Then we see a, a photo of Urban landing on a private plane at Jacksonville airport. So should be a done deal. As far as how it works out, I am a little surprised at how enthusiastic and optimistic everyone is for this working. I, I don't, I, I myself, I, I'm going to call myself a hesitant skeptic. And the only reason I'm hesitant about it, Bill, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to be skeptical publicly, um, is that I don't, I don't know if I've been wrong about John Gruden, but John Gruden has been better than I expected. I don't think he's necessarily been great after leaving Monday Night Football and, and taking over the Raiders, but I think he's been better than a lot of people expected. Mm-hmm. Herm Edwards left ESPN and has done very well at Arizona State. And uh, even more importantly, Mac Brown has left, uh, left ESPN and has dominated at Carolina, North Carolina, uh, much to my personal chagrin. And I've been wrong with all three of those guys. And so I'm hesitant to question Urban Meyer because, just because he's been in TV for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that with Urban, while the 10 years ago or 15 years ago, if he tried to bounce out of Florida and join an NFL team, I don't know if it would have worked. But the, the spread offense and, and college concepts have infiltrated co- professional football so much that it's entirely possible that what Urban wants to run will work. Now, he does rely a lot on recruiting. You know, that's just how it worked at Florida and Ohio State. But I give him a lot of credit for being very choosy with his job selection. The Florida got job, people try to prime out of Utah forever. He takes the Florida job. That's that was a sleeping giant job, and he flipped it around quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Tressel fired from Ohio State. He pounces on that, and it works out immediately. And then with Jacksonville, you have to assume as much as Shad, you know, the concerns with Shad Khan saying that he would control the roster. This is a job where Urban will probably have final say. Will be able to bring in whoever he wants at GM. Is going to draft Trevor Lawrence unless Ryan Day kidnaps him and forces him to draft. <laughs> 
Fields and has a ton of draft picks, a ton of cap space, and will be able to rework the roster in his image while also probably getting plenty of patience from ownership and the fan base and a media market that isn't too intense. So mm-hmm. I think I think he selected the perfect job for it to work for him. I guess the only questions are, you know, schematically and motivationally, can he be an NFL head coach? And I'm at least a little skeptical, but I'm scared to be skeptical, mainly because I don't want to get roasted for it. Well, I mean, I think the the people you brought up are, are mostly, you know, Gruden, I guess, is a pro coach, but the other two guys are college coaches. And I think when it comes to Urban Meyer's role within this organization, that's the first thing that comes to mind is that, like you said, this is a team that's still trying to hire a GM. Um, I know they have some former GMs on staff, trying Balky uh, being one of them. They may bring in a general manager, I guess, on paper, but it does seem like Urban is going to have control of personnel you would figure in making this move it seems like that's what you know he has reshaped the the programs he's been at in florida and ohio state top to bottom and you'd figure the jaguars are bringing him in to do the same thing now at the end of the day i I don't know how much the shot con thing means because at the end of the day the owner always has control of the roster it's just a question of how much they want to implement it you know there are owners who will you know, I, I think the Doug Peterson thing comes to mind for me in terms of like Doug Peterson's not benching Carson Wentz or not not starting or not playing Nate Sudfeld in week 17 unless Jeffrey Lurie knows about it and approves of it. You know, like everyone, right. the owner always has control. It's just, it seems like Shot Khan might be a little more aggressive about implementing it. And that could be a good thing. I mean, this is a team that spent a lot of money in dumb ways for many cases over the past decade. And, you know, I think that Shad Khan may be in a position where he says, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be more selective and judicious about how we spend or where we spend. And that could be a good thing given how that team has worked for a long time. But do you think that Urban Meyer is likely to be different from Chip Kelly or Bill O'Brien or other coaches who have had personnel control over the past decade, especially entering an NFL where, I mean, granted, he did see plenty of college players over the last couple of years, but he's never been at any level, a coach or an executive in the NFL? That's the million dollar question. And I think, I think you're right on Shad Khan. I feel like Shad Khan may have just stepped in it accidentally in a press conference. Of course, you know, like I think what he might've meant was, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if urban wants to trade the number one overall pick, Mm -hmm. you know, he's going to have to clear it with me or, you know, if Dave Caldwell wants to trade Jalen Ramsey, I have to approve of it. And that, that every owner has, you know, that right of first refusal for, for the most part. Um, and it's, it's not like Sean Conn's like, whoa, 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 you're, you're, uh, you're cutting that, you know, you're cutting DJ Shark, excuse me. Um, <laughs> or, I mean, it, it may be that, but that might not even be low level enough to meet it, but you get the point. The, I think the Bill O'Brien and, Chip Kelly comps are perfect. And it's not because they were college guys who couldn't make it work. It's because when you, as a coach with a bunch of, with a lot of cachet who has accumulated power, if you go into this, this spot, I mean, like we don't know who, we don't know who urban's going to bring in as his GM. We assume he will bring in a GM and or not just some like lackey, right hand, hand right hand man lackey. Who's going to do what he says. Mm-hmm if you're making all those personnel decisions and you're, you're, you're coaching the team, that's asking too much of just about everyone except for Bill Belichick. And even Bill Belichick has had Scott Pioli or Nick Casario, some consistency and some high level thinking at that, 
that GM style position in his organization. Andy Reid, same thing, right? I mean, he's he's running everything, but he's got you know either John Dorsey or Brett Veach, two guys who are really good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pete, Pete Carroll has had John Snyder the whole time. That's what makes these jobs successful. Is when the the coach despite all the power that's been accumulated, still understands that you need more voices, that you need checks and balances. And Urban didn't have that at Florida or Ohio State. You know, he could do whatever he wanted. He's, but he's also not crafting a roster at those schools from NFL free agency and from the draft. He's recruiting and has no, you know, quote unquote, salary cap on the talent level that he can acquire. It is entirely predicated on, how, how he can get these kids onto campus, however that may happen, whether, you know, financial or otherwise. Yes. Um, just, you know, and so that's the difference. Can you create a roster? There's just so much more, the, 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 the success of an NFL roster, the fragility of an NFL roster success is substantially greater than that of a college football roster because even if you mess up in your construction to the college level, mm-hmm. you can scheme up and do all kinds of ways to get around it. At the NFL level, if you screw it up, you're toast. And we've seen that from O'Brien. We've seen that from Chip Kelly. And I think that's a, it's a great question. If Urban Meyer, how will he handle the distribution of responsibilities at the front office level? Mm-hmm. In terms of the scheme, you mentioned briefly – talked about how, you know, that scheme might have been more surprising in 2010. But now, of course, we've seen NFL teams implement more spread concepts. And there were teams before that a little bit. Patriots, for example, had some spread concepts in their, you know, their offense in 07. Other teams had it here and there. But, you know, what would have seemed more exotic a decade ago, I think we can both agree, is less exotic now. And so for you, I I guess, is that a positive for you? Because it's proven that what urban Meyer might implement has worked. And so there's, you know, more, more evidence, there's more film on players playing in those schemes. There's more, um, you know, maybe, maybe more confidence that urban Meyer can just take what he did in college and apply it to the pro level and get that to work. Or on the flip side, is it a negative for you because something that might've been, you know, more new and, uh, maybe a little less comfortable for NFL defenses might be already old hat. That's a, it's a, another great question, Bill. That's you're, you're good at your job. Um, <laughs> I would also, add, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both. I also think the interesting thing, and you kind of got my wheels turning when you think about the negative thing. Mm-hmm. So in think, I mean, in 2010, if urban Meyer had come to the NFL, and he had taken the head, if he had taken a head coaching position and he had a GM who would do what he wanted and get him the players he wanted, it would have been, and this is, you know, if you want to look for an example of this on the other side of the ball, I think that uh, Seattle fits, right? You could, you can acquire at a much cheaper cost and without nearly as much competition in terms of the procurement of, of the players, mm-hmm. you can get the players you need to fit your scheme because no one else is running the scheme. Now, like now slot receivers are everywhere. A slot receiver can go. I mean, Devonta Smith, who is awesome, but not exactly, you know, Cal, like Calvin Johnson or Julio Jones is talked about going in the top 10, you know, Tavon Austin went in the top 10 a few years ago. We've seen, oh and I'm not saying that Tavon Austin's great and that he would have been urban Myers guy, but I, I just think that the, the, 
the competition for the resources you want to use in your scheme mm -hmm. are now greater as a result of the expansion of, of those schemes throughout the NFL. So Makes sense. I think it cuts both ways. You know, he's not going to be, you know, people were poo poo and chip Kelly when he was in 2013, he was like, well, this isn't going to work. You know, it, you hear people around the NFL, like, eh, eventually they're going to catch up to it. And that's not really what happened. He just chip just got in over his head, running the you know, front office. Mm -hmm. Um, thought that somehow um, Murray would be a, anyway, that's, thought, we're thought, not going to go down that route. Thought having six running backs on the roster would be a good idea. <laughs> right, exactly. The point being is that I think it can cut both ways. One, you'll be a little more, it's a little more easy to, you know, you can find, there's a bigger pool of people who will know how to operate the scheme. So like you can find an offensive coordinator, et cetera. Um, you're not going to have to teach everybody a brand new language. And then, you know, two, you're, there's more players that you can pick from um, who might fit that skill set. But at the same time, because, the, you know, because teams are more used to more, more used to dealing with it, because there are more teams trying to utilize these players in their schemes, it's going to make it a little bit more difficult um, in that regard. So I think it cuts both ways. And I don't think there's a definite answer. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and I think with Gruden, for example, you know, I, it's not as if the offense that Gruden ran, runs now is like, or what he ran when he rejoined the league was like something that was out of this world where he had taken the best of every single possible offense he'd seen and built this, you know, Franken offense that was incredible. But it was more advanced and more, um, more modern than it was when he left the NFL. And I would imagine that Urban Meyer, having had two years now to see what other teams are doing to take a step backwards, may have some stuff that we haven't seen in college or may have ideas about how to apply maybe some of the things he ran in college at, at the pro level. And I think it is less of a significant difference between what Urban Meyer was running in college and what a pro offense might look like as opposed to um, Chip Kelly back then or um, Cliff Kingsbury in the last couple of years where Cliff Kingsbury's offense in college was you know, like you could literally write it on a piece of paper. It was that simple and that unsophisticated. Um, I think it is a little more sophisticated now, not necessarily all that much sophisticated, so much smaller than I think any other NFL playbook, but you found a middle ground with Cliff Kingsbury that at least was functional. And I think with Urban Meyer, I think that'll be the case as well. Can I give you a theory about what the quarterback room might look like for the Jacksonville Jaguars next year and then move on to the next question? Uh, Trevor Lawrence, Dwayne Haskins, and Tim Tebow? No, Trevor Lawrence. Yes, <laughs> one out of three. How do you? Dwayne Haskins, I think, would make sense. How do you feel about if if he is cut by Washington? What about as a mentor for Ooh. Trevor Lawrence? What about Alex Smith? It's pretty wild that Alex Smith, Urban Meyer, is going to make his first venture into the NFL. I mean, Alex Smith is his first real quarterback, right? I mean, yeah, right, yeah. right. I'm. Yeah. I mean, first, first quarterback of note for, for Urban Meyer out of the college ranks that went to the pros. And it's like Alex Smith might retire. I, is he going to? Yeah, I, I like that. I think, I think Alex Smith added to any quarterback room is a net positive uh, simply based on what he did for Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. Makes sense. Um, okay. Other question for you, Will. In terms Who was of... the third guy? Is there a third guy or no? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Gardner Minshew is still cheap and yeah still uh you know still available and i still feel like he is a valuable player to have i mean 
being at Alex Smith may retire. This could be as a coach too. It might not be as a player. Who knows? But um, Ooh, Alex quarterback coach. I like that. I think he'd probably be good with it. I don't know. Um, sure, I'll I'll blindly take it. Okay. The other uh, situation that comes to mind that I wanted to talk about is something I discussed very briefly with Mina Kimes on Tuesday, and that is the firing of Seahawks offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer. I am very intrigued by this situation because I think the Seahawks go in a lot of different directions. So, Will, were you surprised by the news? And what do you think was the biggest problem that led to Schottenheimer's departure? Uh, I wouldn't say I was surprised, Bill. Uh, by the way, Brian Schottenheimer, friend of the Pick 6 podcast, and an awesome guy. He was on uh, last offseason. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm bothered by his departure, but only because I, I think he's a good dude. Mm-hmm. I understand that Seahawks fans are probably excited about it because once again, the Seahawks offense was fine, scored a bunch of points, didn't excite them from an analytical perspective. Um, uh, Schottenheimer has been there three years now after really just not, you know, the, the offense kind of, fell behind 2018, 19 and 20. They were top 10 of points scored. And I know that's not, that's not the end all be all. Everybody wants to see passing on first down and yada, yada, yada. But I mean, they were, you know, they were high scoring offense. Um, I guess I'm surprised because of the way in which the Seahawks announced it with Pete Carroll citing quote, philosophical differences. And I wonder then is Pete Carroll saying that Brian Schottenheimer ran the ball too much mm-hmm. too, or too little? Because I don't know. The latter, right. Like, I don't know either. <laughs> I mean, is he, is he saying that, you know, Brian Schottenheimer took control late in the season and didn't let Russ cook? Or is it Brian Schottenheimer's idea to let Russ cook early? And then Pete Carroll sort of leaned on him later. And that's why the offense didn't work. And now Pete Carroll really wants to run the ball because if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's that part where Pete wants to lean into the run game, then I think there are a lot of concerns. I, I do also feel like Seahawks fans are a little spoiled. There's a large contingent out there. And I've heard media members say this too. It's like fire Pete Carroll. I mean, I, I don't get that one bit. I understand that Russell Wilson is a driving force in the Seahawks success, but they've won less than n- nine games one time since Pete Carroll arrived and yeah. have been to the playoffs every year, but twice it is crazy to suggest that you would want to fire Pete Carroll just because you don't like his offensive philosophy. So not, I don't, I, I don't know. I think I'm, I think I was not surprised given that they were so quickly ousted from the playoffs despite winning 12 games. Um, but a little surprised and concerned about the philosophical differences part. Yeah. I mean, I'm, Hmm. I'm of two minds of it. And I think that you brought up a really good point about Pete Carroll and the idea that like, you know, Seahawks fans and the Seahawks organization, the baseline's very high. You know, like this isn't like a a, a mediocre season or like a, a disappointing season for the Seahawks is 12 and four and multiple dramatic victories and an MVP candidate quarterback for the first half of the season. Like, a lot of teams would kill for that. The Jaguars would be ecstatic if they had, you know, the worst season of the Russell Wilson era in 2021. I guess my concern here is not necessarily about firing Brian Schottenheimer, but when I think about who is going to replace Brian Schottenheimer, number one, 
there's no obvious candidate where I sit there and say, okay, if they get that guy, they are in great shape. There is a perfect fit here. I don't see that guy. Maybe you do. And I want to hear who you think might be a good candidate. But number two, because we're not sure whether Pete Carroll fired Brian Schottenheimer and we're not sure whether it was because he threw the ball too frequently or ran the ball too frequently or didn't run the ball frequently enough, it's hard to gauge what Pete Carroll might even be looking for when it comes to a particular candidate or an archetype for that candidate. So I'm going to be very intrigued to see who they actually hire, but Will, who do you think might make sense for the Seahawks um, given where they stand right now? Well, it, the, the, all the signs bill appear to be pointing towards the chargers, which is uh, the former chargers staff. Yeah. Um, Kitchen was the name that first got floated out there. uh, I think from Mike Garofalo of NFL media and I, I, I saw that tweet from Mike and the, the replies were all Seahawks fans going, no. <laughs> uh, and and I, I was really surprised by it because I mean, I guess it's kind of similar to Brian Schottenheimer in that it's a run first offense where, you know, the quarterback who's athletic with a huge arm takes deep vertical shots, but I, I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if you, if you get, if Russell Wilson has, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but if, if, Russell Wilson has Justin Herbert numbers next year. Is anybody, is anybody mad? I mean, I guess Russ kind of had him anyway. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But like if, if he's, I don't know if he, if he, I mean, so his volume goes up. I mean, Russell Wilson had 4,200 yards, 40 touchdowns and 13 interceptions. He just mm-hmm. was really good in the beginning of the season and not the end. And so right. we sort of treated it like he had a bad year. Um, Anthony Lynn, I think has been mentioned as well, or at least maybe I read that in the Seattle times. Um, Tony Elliott out of Clemson, Josina Anderson, uh, floated that. That's a, that's a really intriguing name. He's obviously Davo Sweeney's, uh, right hand, you know, one of his top coordinators. And you saw what happened to Trevor Lawrence with no Tony Elliott in the championship game or in, in the semifinal game, excuse me, got ugly. Um, and then Pep Hamilton's another name that I think Pep Hamilton actually makes a lot of sense. He, he loves pro style run game, going to take some shots down the field. It feels like Pete Carroll is going to hire somebody who fits what he like, who's, who's going to provide some confirmation bias though. I don't think Pete Carroll is going to hire somebody who wants to throw the ball 70% of the time. Um, you know, it, it's going to be somebody who is a run first run heavy play caller, even you know, not necessarily, you know, run on first down, but I just think runs a lot will be whoever Pete Carroll brings in. That will be the deal. I mean, that's why he went out and got shoddy three years ago. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, I mean, like, I guess what I'm saying is mm-hmm. if Seahawks fans are hopeful that firing Brian Schottenheimer is going to lead to some offensive revolution in Seattle, I would be extremely surprised by that. I mean, Anthony Lynn was mentioned in the Seattle, uh, like I said, Anthony Lynn was mentioned in the Seattle Times article. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, you know, he's, <laughs> if Anthony Lynn shows up, you're running the ball 80% of the time. Yeah, that's, that would be, a, I think that would be, that would be a very weird hire. Like, I feel like I'd have to go back and watch Anthony Lynn's offenses before Buffalo to really get a sense of what that was going to look like with Russell Wilson. Cause I don't think he's going to be running the Tyrod Taylor role. If you the Seattle times article and you hit control F and type in the word run, there are eight examples. And this is just the coordinators. <laughs> I mean, like running the offense loves to run the ball. Longtime running backs coach, successful run first offense running backs coach. If Carol really wants to run it and run it back, I mean, <laughs> this is how it's happening. I, I don't know. It's very strange. I, you know, the thing with Schottenheimer is that 
if you go back and remember when he was hired, like they were very aggressive about hiring Brian Schottenheimer. They fired Daryl Bethel and then Schottenheimer got hired like way before I think other teams hired their coordinators during that cycle. And I think the concern at the time was that someone else was going to hire Brian Schottenheimer before they did, which I don't recall feeling especially like that was the case at the time. We'll see what happens. Brian Schottenheimer may get another NFL coordinator job. Not out of the question. I almost wonder, and I maybe this is just stupid of me. I look at Daryl Bevel, who you know Pete Carroll likes Daryl Bevel. You know they ran the scheme for a long time. You know they ran the ball effectively with Daryl Bevel, and Daryl Bevel is going to be a free agent because the Lions are going to hire a new head coach. I don't hate that. Was, I think so. When so when Daryl Bevel was fired. Mm-hmm. What, weren't all the old defensive pieces, Earl Thomas and Richard Sherman, still there? Am I, am I crazy? Um, I, think, I, I think it was either they were about to leave or they had just left. It was like right it was towards the well, end. It feels like, Earl was it still feels there. Like, yeah, Earl was definitely still there. Sherm has been in Seattle. Yeah, so I guess Sherm had just, had just wrapped up. It, I mean, it felt like the firing of Bevel, too, was part and parcel. Like, all right, we've got to move on from this, that, that debacle of a Super Bowl play that has haunted us and ripped our potential defensive dynasty apart, you know, five years ago or whatever it was. And so, yeah, I I could see a Daryl Bevel reboot that that's not a crazy idea. And look, that would be, it's not a dissimilar thing to what you see from the chargers, right. Or what you saw from Brian Schottenheimer is run the ball and take advantage of Russell Wilson and his incredible numbers and incredible proficiency off of play action. Mm -hmm. You've brought in drafted DJ DK Lockett. You signed Greg Olson. Who knows if he'll be back? You know, you have Tyler Lockett there. Mm-hmm. All of your receivers and pass catchers are by design guys who can get vertical on play action plays mm-hmm. and then, you know, take the ball deep after they catch it. I mean, it's like they built this offense for, for that. So I don't know why you would want to bring in somebody who's going to run a, you know, five wide and Russ is, is whipping it around when you do have this offense that is built for play action shots. So, I mean, I think that's probably what we'll see. Bevel makes a lot of sense. Last question for you about this. And then we'll move on to the playoff games. Is there a, is there a coordinator you think the Seahawks could hire that Seahawks fans would be overwhelmingly excited about? And who would that be? Um, okay. I've got one. Oh, okay. Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson. Mm, do you think they would be really excited about Doug Peterson? Because I think they, I think they probably should be, but I don't know that they would be. I think they would be. I mean, like, I don't think they'd be excited if they fired Pete Carroll for Doug Peterson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think Seahawks fans would be intrigued by the idea of Doug Peterson, who I believe grew up a Seahawks fan, um, oh. coming in and running the offense. If I stole you- that from the Seattle. Oh, you stole that? Oh, I, I, that's like incredible research, Will. I can't believe you had that off the top of your head. Yeah, you know, a Ferndale native, as we all know, uh, Bill, Doug Peterson is, um, no, I didn't have that off the top of my head. But that, uh, I saw that and I was like, well, that seems crazy. And I was like, well, but I could see him coming in and doing like some, you know, being interested in running the ball, spreading, you know, not, not you know, spreading it around in terms of usage of the running backs. And then also opening it up with some creative play calling, which we assume isn't just entirely Frank Reich's doing in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. If you're Doug Peterson at this point, aren't you just like, well, I don't know. I guess he, I guess that was that report from Ian Rappaport where he didn't want to have someone telling him what to do. But if you're Doug Peterson, are you almost like just 
would you rather be an offensive coordinator than a head coach at this point, given what happened in Philadelphia? Yeah, but Pete Carroll's going to be telling you what to do. Too. That's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. That's fair. Um, all right. Yeah, I mean, if I'm, if I'm Doug Peterson, I don't know. I mean, I think there's probably, you know, we saw this with, um, you've seen this with Rex Ryan, Adam Case, and Mike McCarthy to a degree, except for the fact that he couldn't land a job last year or before the year, the year when he took off, is that, you know, these guys who are, you know, when you're fired from these jobs, but you're still well thought of, which I think Doug Peterson qualifies as, there's sort of, you kind of want to stick it to your old employer and you kind of, like, like there's a willingness to dive back in as a head coach, even if the job might not be right. And so I just wonder if Doug Peterson fits in that mold. If he goes to the Jets, I don't necessarily think that's the case because he and Joe Douglas know each other. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I, but I'm with you. I think you'd almost rather go take a year off and be a coordinator. If your offense lights it up, you're going to, you know, get other looks. Mm -hmm. If there's not a job out there that you absolutely love. Makes sense. Absolutely. Um, let's run through these four games. We have a little bit of news, not surprising news necessarily, but we'll start with the first game on the docket, which is Rams Packers on Saturday and reports just coming out now that John Wolford has been ruled out for the Rams-Packers games. Jared Goff will start. Our old friend Blake Bortles backing up Jared Goff in this game. So, well, let me start with this when it comes to the Rams-Packers games. I think there's a couple big storylines. I want to get your opinion on them. First and foremost, two-part two question here, I guess. Number one, do the Rams... Sorry, number one, do you think Jared Goff will look good against the Packers? And number two, do you think the Rams need Jared Goff to look good to win this game or can he look the way he looked last week, which was, you know, I, I inconsistent at best, I would say. So there's an old saying about Milford men. <laughs> They're better to be, it's, you'd rather be seen than heard. That's true. Or heard. Than, right. Um, and I think it's sort of a let's paraphrase it, but apply to Jared Goff. Sure. I don't think Jared Goff needs to look good for the Rams to win. I think Jared Goff need, you don't need to see Jared Goff for the Rams to win. Mm -hmm. And, I think what I'm saying is that the Rams path to victory in my mind is a whole ton of cam acres and some easy play action looks that, it, that get Jared Goff comfortable, that give him easy reads. And in a, in a world where the Rams are running the ball well against the Packers defense that you can run against. And I think it's like 70 over under 70 yards for cam acres is the prop bet. Right. And yeah, which is, I guess, not that high, but I mean, that's pretty, you know, we, we live in a world where we're used to seeing Derrick Henry at 120, which is absurd. Um, and I think that with their defense, and I'm not, I mean, I posited this a few weeks ago, but everybody's saying it now. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's, just, it's just, it is what it is. They have Jalen Ramsey, who's probably the best lockdown corner in the NFL right now. Mm -hmm. And the Packers have Devontae Adams. If Jalen Ramsey can hold him to under 100 yards and, and, even throwing a touchdown there if you want, mm -hmm. then I think the Rams are very much in this game. Um, if not, then I think it's a blowout. And then we have to see a lot of Jared Goff. And if the Rams are playing catch up and we see a lot of Jared Goff, if Jared Goff is on our television screens, making lots of plays, then in my opinion, this is a Packers route. So if we don't see Jared Goff, I think that's the path for the Rams to win where they play exceptional defense, mm -hmm. Aaron Donald is chasing down Aaron Rodgers, who is trying to make those secondary looks, mm -hmm. but, you know, 
but Devontae Adams isn't getting open on them. Mm-hmm. And additionally, we're seeing uh, Cam Akers run the ball effectively. So, I mean, that's, I, I guess that's kind of simplistic, but I just think if Jared Goff has to throw 35 plus times, it's probably a dead man walking situation for the Rams. How much do you, how much concern do you have about Jared Goff in the weather at Lambeau? Kind of a lot. Yeah. I don't I know. Kinda, I agree. I don't I t- I mean, this is, I, look, if I grew up in California mm-hmm. and played all of my elementary school and middle school and high school f- football games in pristine Los Angeles slash California weather, and then I went to college in California, and then I was drafted by a team that, that, that plays football in California, mm-hmm. you know, I probably wouldn't be very good at playing in cold weather. And if I had a broken thumb, I'd be even worse at playing in cold weather. We've seen like Derek Carr is a similar profile, and he typically is not fantastic in the cold weather. We've just seen this from guys. I mean, that's I'm not saying that you know Jared Goff's never played in cold weather. Obviously, he has. But this is a playoff game with big stakes against a dynamic Packers uh, team that has you know for as much as we talk about their offense, their defense has plenty of weapons too, mm-hmm. and. You're, it's going to be cold. It's not going to snow. It doesn't look like, but 30 degrees in in Lambeau is is, is pretty intense. So, yeah, I, th- I I am extremely concerned. Um, in terms of that Devontae Adams Jalen Ramsey matchup, I mean, you mentioned the hundred yard mark sort of being the the line where you feel like if Devontae Adams gets over a hundred yards, the to put it politely, the Rams are screwed. Do you think <laughs> yeah. that? Like if you were going to set an over under yourself for this game on Devontae Adam receiving yards, uh, what would you put at that? Mm. Um, it's a good question. I, I would I, guess. I, yeah, I would say eighty four and a half. I would go a little lower than you. I was going to say seventy eight and a half, but I feel like we're in the same ballpark. By the way, you know what I realized the other day, Bill? Mm-hmm. And I was I was looking at the odds um, on Caesars, or maybe I was watching like the Daily Wager. With sure. uh, Doug ESPN, ESPN programming, great show. Great show on ESPN. And uh, I noticed that it was like odds presented by Caesars mm-hmm. powered by William Hill mm-hmm. or something like that. In other words, I think I think I can mention what apparently William Hill and Caesars are are uh, are together. So I guess I, I, I was always worried about mentioning William Hill on here and, and maybe I shouldn't be as worried. It seems like they're all friends. That's what it boils yeah. down to. You can mention whatever you want, Will. Uh, I, well, I, I was going to try and find what the actual mm-hmm. odds were for, uh, for Devonte Adams. So what would you, I said, 84 and a half, you said 78 and a half, 78 and a half. Let's see what we but have. you could probably talk me into it here. And I think that the tough part is that even in, in the Seahawks Rams game, um, I went and charted every play with DK Metcalf and I would say about 20% of the time Jalen Ramsey was on somebody else or, they were in like a, yeah. a zone coverage where Jalen Ramsey wasn't the primary defender. In fact, on, on DK Metcalf's first touchdown, that long touchdown pass, it was an improvised play or where the play had broken down and Russell Wilson and DK Metcalf did improvise, but Jalen Ramsey was on the other side of the field. So even though Jalen Ramsey was on DK Metcalf for most of the game, he wasn't the primary defender on him for a chunk of time. Oh, yeah. And, and that's the thing is when we're, when we're talking about Devonte Adams and, and that's, I mean, that's on me. Like, I don't think it's, I guess what I'm saying, what's, you know, Maybe we need to look at what is the over under for 
Devontae Adams receiving yards when in coverage against, oh, you know, or okay. when matched up against Ramsey. And I don't know, you know, there's a whole lot of things. By the way, the over-under, I found it up, found something on Fantasy Labs. I'm not sure who's power, powering this, but 86 and a half. <laughs> oh, there you go. That, that's why you're the professional here. Well, I mean, I, I mean professional de- 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 degenerate, perhaps. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think, I don't know what it would be when they're matched up because you would have to know exactly how the Rams plan on deploying Ramsey and how, you know, I mean, we've seen, yeah, they're not, the Packers aren't afraid to move Devonte Adams into the slot. Will Jalen Ramsey travel with him, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fun chess here between, you know, I mean, Brandon Staley, uh, our, you know, our friend Robert Mays has a great profile on him at theathletic.com, which people should read. Uh, Staley's having a heck of a year as a defensive coordinator to follow in Wade Phillips footsteps and, mm-hmm. and perform and orchestrate this defense the way as good as it's been is really impressive. And then you have Matt LaFleur who has worked with Sean McVay. So there's some tendon. It's a fun chess match across the board here. I think. Yeah. Do you have the Packers winning? I do, but I think the Rams stay within seven and I think they are, uh, I think they're a surprisingly live dog for how people probably perceive this game. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Other game on Saturday is Ravens bills. Let's start with the simple thing here in terms of Josh Allen. Is there any way the Ravens can stop Josh Allen? And if they do stop Josh Allen on Saturday, how do you think they will have done it? Yes, I think there is a path to stopping Josh Allen. Um, I don't know. So the last time these teams played was late in 2019. Josh Allen was terrible in that game. So there is some evidence of Don Martindale scheming up stuff against Allen. Mm-hmm. I will say the, that game, crazy wind, if I recall, in that game, like 18 miles an hour. Um, Lamar was a lot better than Josh Allen in that particular outing. I don't know how much of 2019 necessarily applies to 2020 when we talk about uh, the Bills because just of how different and how much better they've been. But I think it is worth noting. And then uh, the path to, to stopping Josh Allen, I think, is to come out of the gates early defensively. Mm-hmm. And you have to get a couple of stops on the first three possessions. Like I think you need to hold the Bills to three points or less on their first three possessions. And if you can do that, and you're Baltimore, you can then on offense run the football effectively. I don't think they're going to struggle struggle to run the football. If you look at mm-hmm. Buffalo's, uh, they've lost three games, and then you add in um, I think it's six total games. Add in three more, including the wild card game. And um, two close losses. The Rams, excuse me, the Rams win, and then there's one more, and I'll have to look it up. But in those six games that were either losses or very close wins, the Bills allowed 160 rushing yards or more. And it it wasn't one of those things where you know they were down big and they gave up a ton of rushing yards. It was just teams that could rush on them did. Mm-hmm. And I think Baltimore can do that because of how well they're running the football right now. Buffalo's uh, defensive front a little bit smaller than average. So if Baltimore can get stops in those first three possessions and score touchdowns on at least two of their first possessions, Mm -hmm. I think it will cause Josh Allen to press and to start to really try to force things into coverage. And so at that point, if you have him trying to play catch up and you're running the football effectively and he's throwing it almost every time and trying to make plays happen. I think mentally you have to talk, you have to get him in a spot where he feels like he needs to press because last week against the Colts, there was a guy, there was a moment or two there where 
Josh Allen. It was like, it's like the incredible Hulk. Like this, this, this guy who just wants to turn over the football is just like trying to break out of this, like, like rip the shirt and tear open and turn to this big turnover monster. And he was like trying to do it. And Josh Allen's like fighting him and like keeping him out. No, dude, you're not coming out here. Hulk. Like, like banners in charge now. And, um, and as a result that, you know, he hadn't had that big turnover that we saw last year. And I think it's waiting to come, but I think you only get it from him. If you can make him press when he's trailing by double digits. So I guess that's not really a, schematically here's how you mess up Josh Allen so much as it, as it is a, I think you can psychologically get him in a spot where he's trying too hard. So you're advocating for psychological torture of Josh Allen in this game. Psychological mm-hmm. warfare, not torture. warfare, not torture, just warfare. If it happens to turn warfare. into torture, you're okay with that though. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, and the other thing I'd be interested in too is like the bills. I mean, the, the Ravens blitz more than any other team in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Josh Allen's been awesome against the blitz this year. I think he's top five in basically every, every passing category against the blitz, if not top mm-hmm. three or higher, if not for Patrick Mahomes. So, and then you look at what the Colts did, you throw some zone at him and you force him to dink and dunk and work down the field. Mm-hmm. We have not seen in Don Martindale's history, particularly as it relates to playing the chiefs, Yes. A willingness to abandon his scheme and yes. to play something that will limit Patrick Mahomes. Will he do that against Josh Allen? I think that's a pretty big factor. My guess is he won't. So that's something to watch too. I think that's the big thing is that you go back and watch those Chiefs games. Look at the blitz numbers. It's it's over 40% every time. And Patrick Mahomes has nuked the uh, the Baltimore Ravens in each of those games. He's been incredible. And the, the Ravens have not had an answer and not been willing to change things up with an answer. Now. Um, they were a little different last week against Tennessee, a team that had beat them in the past. They were packing the box a little more. They played a little more zone behind it. Um, they obviously had Marlon Humphrey one-on-one with um, A.J. Brown, especially early in that game, and that did not go well for them. So I wonder, um, I mentioned this to Mina Kimes when we talked about it on her show. I want to know what you think as well. If you're the Ravens, do you put Marlon Humphrey one-on-one on Stefan Diggs and hope that you win that matchup and then hope you can kind of defend around it? Or do you think that's too difficult of a task for uh, Marlon Humphrey to pull off. I don't think anybody's defending Diggs one on one personally, but I think you can try. I mean, I think that's I think that is absolutely an approach you should. That's what you would say to a child who you know is not going to succeed. Like you can try it, honey, but that's not you know. Let me know how it goes right. for you. Robbie's like, I want to beat Mario Brothers in one day. I'm like, listen, man, I, <laughs> kids don't do that. Like, I'm going to beat Mega Man two this afternoon. I'm like, listen, man, kids don't do that, but you can try, buddy. <laughs> I mean, I think, look, I, I don't have a problem if you come out and that's the plan of attack, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. as long as you, I think you have to be very quick to adjust to it, though, mm-hmm. because Stefan Diggs is so freaking good. And we, we've seen it. Um, we talked about this. I'm trying to think who we talked about it with on this on a stream. Maybe it was like Jordy Nelson, one of these former wide receivers, but just pointing out that the way that Allen and Diggs have so quickly gotten on the same page from a defensive um, uh, recognition standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like they both realize when it's zone and when it's man and Diggs is setting up in these little holes in the zone. And when it's man, he's just you know doing what he does on, on routes and, and carving dudes up and Josh Allen's looking for him. So I think you have to be really careful about that where you don't want to deploy Humphrey and it, it gets out of hand because, you know, if Diggs gets you on two deep shots early, I think I think this game's over. Like I don't I don't know that Baltimore's coming. Baltimore I don't know that Baltimore's coming back by throwing the ball around a ton. I just don't think that's going to be the case. So 
if you're Baltimore, I think you need to be really careful about risking mm-hmm. a one-on-one coverage against Stephon Diggs, and then you get those deep shots or those PI calls, and all of a sudden you're down fourteen nothing. It's you know freezing up there. You you know you you want to run, but you keep feeling the need to abandon it and go to the pass. I think that's I think it, I think it applies to both teams. Like if one of these teams gets down double digits, it becomes a really really tough spot just because of how how they could operate on offense. Buffalo with a better chance to come back probably than Baltimore. Makes sense. In terms of the um, Raven side of things, I mean, Lamar Jackson, obviously a ton of running last week. The passing game was not very effective. I mean, they did have some plays here and there, but the early interception was pretty ugly. Um, really, that comeback was fueled by Marquise Brown running with the ball after the catch, which they might get again against the Bills, not out of the question. And Lamar Jackson running with the football and doing an incredible job of it. And he might run for a hundred yards again against the bills, not out of the question there, but in terms of that offense, I mean, do you think the Ravens are likely to have, you know, a pretty significant offensive performance? Like, like, like do you think, do you, would you feel comfortable saying they can get 24 points on offense against this bills team? Oh yeah. Very comfortable. Really? I, I, okay. Yeah. I, I think one thing to watch it sort of flew under the radar about Josh Allen needing to win that playoff game against the Colts because he would have been 0-2, and then the narrative street would have popped up real quick about can Josh Allen win a playoff game. Mm-hmm. Um, Lamar Jackson obviously was already there. I, 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 wanted, I want to see how these guys show up to work, and I want to I see if Lamar is a little looser and maybe more comfortable passing the ball because he no longer has to have the pressure of winning a playoff game. I mean, I think that matters. And I, I think the way Hollywood Brown averaging over, like, I think it might be up to eight targets per game now, the last six weeks, or seven weeks, including the playoff game, they're feeding him. We've got, uh, you know, we, Lamar running the ball really well, a lot more. I, I think there's a chance that the Ravens could explode on offense here. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, Marquise Brown looks like a different player over the past five or six weeks. I mean, he's been, you know, whether he's more confident, whether he's just moving better, whether he's... Um, with Lamar, trust him a little bit more. It feels like he's just, you know, just playing totally differently. I mean, it feels like, you know, he is more of a threat deep. He's more of a threat short. He's getting the most out of his talent, which, you know, for a guy who, I, like I said, I mean, a show, I had him on every fantasy team this year and I was wildly frustrated with him for the first 12 weeks of the year. I mean, you know, it's good to see him evolving and improving. And then I think that changes that offense. I think they still could use to add a wide receiver during the off season. But I do think that having Marquise Brown as a threat, you know, changes the way they can approach that offense. So it sounds like you might think the Ravens can pull an upset here. I do, Bill. I like the Ravens in this spot and I'm prepared for Buffalo to be up 14, nothing. <laughs> it's all, it's all out the window, but I think, I think Lamar comes in loose. I think the the offense is just going to put up points early and run the ball against Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And if they get a couple of stops, then I think that they can just wear Buffalo out, uh, you know, in terms of the, the game flow and, and, and pull off an upset. I just, I think, I kind of think the Ravens are going to make a deep, deep run in the playoffs. Interesting. I like it. We have to break an upset at some point. So I think that is totally fair into Sunday here. Last two games to talk about here. Let's get to chiefs. And Browns. So, Will, um, I picked the Steelers to win comfortably last week, so my opinion should not be trusted when it comes to the Cleveland Browns, but you're a smarter person than me. What stands out to you about Chiefs-Browns? I mean, do you think that, you know, I guess on paper, 
the Chiefs are much better than the Browns. Their record's better. Their advanced stats are better. Should be a blowout. I mean, do you see that being the case here? And if not, what do you think um, is going to stand out here for the Browns to have a shot against the Chiefs? I mean, everything about this game screams Chiefs bloodbath. And <laughs> Aaron, I mean, Aaron Schatz tweeted out uh, earlier in the week. It's like the Chiefs are, or the Browns are 29th in DVOA defense against on third down. The Chiefs are, or the Browns are 29th in DVOA defense against tight ends. And the Chiefs, the Browns, I can't say the Browns. The Browns are 29th in DVOA defense against the deep, against deep passes. If you were picking three things the Chiefs do really well on offense, it would be convert third downs, utilize Travis Kelsey at the tight end position, and take deep shots. I mean, I can't imagine a worse matchup there. I, I said earlier in the season that the Browns would give the Chiefs fits, though, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think it's similar to Buffalo and Baltimore, where there is a, a, a particular game script that this just gets out of hand for, for the Browns where, you know, the Chiefs come out, Andy Reid off the bye, he's got a couple of scripted drives, Mahomes works him down the field, they, they pass on every single play, you know, against you know, the stacked boxes, the Browns guess wrong, they're expecting a run, and Kelsey and Hill, and all of a sudden it's 14 nothing. the Browns get away from running the football, bit of a panic point, I think, if that happens, and, you know, you let Baker throw 50 times, and this is 31-10, and it's it was never you know it wasn't ever that close. I, I think that's a very realistic game script. I also think there's a chance where Cleveland, you know, we saw the Chiefs with a bye last year mm-hmm. come out slow against the Texans. We yeah. we've seen the Chiefs over the last seven weeks. You know, either they lost in week seventeen. You don't need to count that, but you know, seven straight games of six points or less, or six straight games of seven points or less, whichever one it was, they haven't been blowing people out, and so. I do wonder if they will come out and be different than they were for this entire second half of the season. That's hard to do. You take a break and just come out and you're like, all right, we're refreshed. Let's do what we did. Stop playing with our food. If they, so I think, it, I think it ultimately comes down to how do the Chiefs look in the first quarter? And if they're lighting the Browns up, it's over. If they let the Browns stick around, though, I think Cleveland has a real shot to rip off some big runs to use some play action stuff um, to get the ball into Kareem Hunt's hands in the passing game and, and to, and then to keep it close. So and that's sort of a cop out, but I just think it, it all depends on how the chiefs play out of the box. It's not out of the question. And I mean, you know, last year when it came to the chiefs, like you said, they were sleepy in the first half of those games. And what bailed them out is that they were basically perfect in the red zone. And correct. I say team that was not perfect in the red zone this year on offense during the regular season. I think it's tough to count on them suddenly, you know, turning things on in the red zone for, you know, to convert 90% of the time again, as we hit the uh, postseason here. I don't think they've been like saving things up. I just think they're not a very good offensive line. I think they're not a great running game. Obviously, we know what Patrick Mahomes can do, but um, outside of maybe running him a little bit more because it's the postseason, I don't think there's like a sudden solution for the Chiefs when it comes to succeeding you know, 90% of the time in the red zone the way they did a year ago. I think it's just randomness. And if they get it, great. But, you know, if they start settling for field goals, suddenly that offense, which is incredible, is just pretty good. And pretty good can be beaten. Um, in, in terms of Travis Kelsey, because I feel like 
this is a guy who, to me, was the offensive player of the year. You can certainly pick Derrick Henry or Alvin Kamara or half a dozen other guys, and I, I wouldn't argue, but I mean, one of the most dominant seasons we've ever seen from a tight end. Who on earth is going to cover Travis Kelsey in this game for the Browns? Or you want me to come up with the answer for that? Yes, <laughs> nobody. I... The answer is nobody, Bill. Nobody covers Travis Kelsey. It, uh, it doesn't happen. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what they do. And the problem, and this is what makes the Chiefs so deadly, right? Is that if you try to allocate your resources to covering Travis Kelsey, mm-hmm. and you put two guys on Kelsey, or you're, you know, you bring a safety down and have him try to box Kelsey with a linebacker, which could, you know, get good, even good luck with that because of the way that he runs his routes and how fluid he is and how deadly he is after the catch. Right. Like, <laughs> you know what you just did? You just left numbers for Tyreek Hill down the field. And I mean, I think Denzel Ward's awesome, but I don't think he's locking down Tyreek Hill on a, on an Island. No one is. So I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I think that right there is the really the crux of why it's almost impossible to pick the, the, the Browns to, to be live for an upset here as, as much fun as that would be. And as wild as that would be, and as cool as it would be for Browns fans is that I don't see how their defense slows down multiple weapons that the chiefs have, because they, they exploit their weaknesses and they are, you know, Kelsey's by far the top tight end, I think in the NFL at this point after the season he had and Tyree kill is a top five wide receiver unquestionably. So I mean, I guess good luck with that. I don't know what they do on defense. So is it for you just a game where they have to just win a shootout, not score the Chiefs? Yeah, or it's, well, we you know we've seen the formula where, you know, and I, I hate the idea where you play ball control. We saw the Texans do it two years ago and the Chiefs do it. I think in back-to-back weeks, mm-hmm. Chiefs, I mean, the, the, excuse me, the Colts on a Sunday night game. That's right. Yeah, that's, I think that's sort of the formula. I don't think you beat the Chiefs in the shootout. You just don't because you have to, if, if it's a shootout, you have to be perfect and expect Patrick Mahomes to make mistakes. And that's not like, if it's that Texas tech, Oklahoma score that that box score that's floating around where Mahomes like, kept, kept, kept Texas tech and, you know, a bunch of gas station workers in, in it against like Baker, Orlando Brown, um, Mark Andrews, Marquise Brown, all these guys, you know, I, I think if that's the case, it's a chiefs, the chiefs will just pull away eventually because you can't ask Baker. I think it's got to be a Mahomes and the chiefs are just flat. You generate some pressure without blitzing and you run the ball effectively and just keep them out of their game and hope that, you know, you get one mistake from them. I'm just picturing a bunch of guys in like their gas station uniforms coming on the field. Not like that's unfair. Not Texas tech uniforms, just like Steve and his, you know, in his uniform, was coming out and just catching bombs from Patrick Mahomes. I mean, I, 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 I think that's fair. Um, you know, I, I, I think it would be tough. I, I really think it would be tough for the Browns to have a, a game where they can win a high-scoring game. And, and it's not out of the question. I suppose anything is possible. But I think about the, the game that comes to mind for me as the closest comparable for this, where a team did pull an upset, is the Giants-Packers game from. I think it was the 2011 postseason. Either 2011 or also, Beckham. Oh yeah, right. No wait, no, yeah. that wasn't. That was that was that was before Beckham. Both games or the 2011 game. The 2011 game, the Giants won. Oh, sorry, the Giants lost the boat game. Never mind. Sorry, carry yes, on. Yes, the Giants. The boat was not a successful strategy for the Giants. That's right. unfortunate. We wouldn't. We wouldn't make fun of the boat if they'd won. Yeah, you're yes. right. Yeah, the, the 11 game. Right, the Super Bowl team. The Super Bowl team won against the Packers, who were 15 and one. Chiefs were not. 
they're 14 and two, I think, but they, you know, were 14 and one heading into week 17. Um, sort of like the Packers, obviously a, a dominant offense, a team that was, you know, either the Packers lost right at the end of the year to the Romeo Cornell Chiefs, but were losing games, you know, or not losing it, but winning games close. Like they were, they had a great record, but they maybe weren't quite as good as their record indicated. And people still thought they were going to blow out the Giants who came into these the playoffs with a losing, re- or, uh, not a losing record, but a losing point differential, not just the Browns do, but Giants won in the wild card round, of course. Uh, I think they blew out the Falcons. Held, held uh, Matt Ryan Falcons to two points. Yeah, that was the 24-2 game where the Falcons failed like five times on fourth down or four times on fourth down. Um, and did then beat the get, Packers. Did we, uh, did we get a Matt Ryan can't win a playoff game narrative after that? I think we might oh, yeah. have. Oh, yeah, for sure we did. Yeah. Um, but the, the why I'm bringing this up is to point out just how many things had to go right for the Giants in that game. And they won comfortably. They won by, I think, two touchdowns. But to win that game, the Giants needed to have about eight drops from the Packers and like, you know, a bunch of third downs that got dropped. They, the Packers fumbled five times. Two of them were uh, overturned on replay. The other three were all recovered by the Giants and the Giants hit a Hail Mary for a touchdown at the end of the first half. Like, that's right. That's right. I, I think the Browns need to have a game like that to beat the, beat the Packers here. I mean, I, I don't think they win a traditional game. I think they have to have a game like, like a everything goes wrong for the Chiefs game for the Browns to win here. That's not out of control. And 31 degrees in Green Bay, 20 mile an hour wind. You know, you're probably not going to get that wind chill 19. My goodness gracious. Packers were uh, minus eight in that game. You're probably not going to get that sort of weather situation in Kansas City. I don't believe Eli Manning was playing out of his mind. Aaron Rodgers was just fine. And yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a pretty good comp, you know, this, this just absolutely dominant team fresh off a Super Bowl win, which they made in sort of, you know, a surprising uh, Super Bowl run. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Packers were a wild card the year before chiefs obviously weren't, but you know, you, and then you come in and you're the team, you know, the dominant team all year long. And so much to the point that at least for Kansas city, it felt like they were not bored at the end of the year. But just sort of, you know, just winning, just racking up wins and maybe you come out cold and maybe you come out and make mistakes. I, I don't I don't know that that's what we see from an Andy Reid coach team, but I, I think you're right. It has to. And the other problem, Bill, mm-hmm. the Browns got that last week from the Steelers. <laughs> so, they did. That's you got to get two weeks in a row, basically. That's fair. Um, finishing up here. Saints Bucks, a matchup where the Saints have beaten the Bucks twice this year. Tom Brady has thrown, I believe, yeah, five picks in two games against the Saints. Seven across the other 14 games. The last win for the Saints in this matchup was, I think, the most dominant victory I saw from any team all year, given the quality of the competition. Just a massive blowout start to finish for the Saints. Is there any reason to think things will be different for the Bucs this time? I don't, I mean, I, the only reason that I can give you, and it's not a particularly great one, is that um, Tom Brady is Tom Brady. And sure. again, like I, I, I recognize that that's not a particularly great reason. I, I understand it. I just don't really want, a, want to bet against Tom Brady in, in general. Um, the problem for me when I look at this is that if you take, if you take the Saints, if you, excuse me, if you take the Buccaneers, right, they lose in week one to the Saints, they lose to the Bears in week five. 
They lose to the Saints again in week nine, as you mentioned, very ugly fashion, 38-3. A, a white flag field goal from Bruce Arians to avoid getting blanked. They lose to the Rams in week 11, the Chiefs in week 12, and then they beat Washington last week but do not cover. This season, the Buccaneers were 1-4 and 0-5 and and against the spread against top 10 defenses by DVOA. They beat everybody else and beat them kind of handily. New Orleans is the number two defense by DVOA. And I just think that sometimes when people like to say, you can't beat a team three times in one season, but you can, and it actually happens two thirds of the time when those teams meet. And that's because usually when those teams, when one team beats another twice and then beats it a third time, it's just a bad matchup for that team. Yes. You know, and I think the saints might just be a bad matchup for Tom Brady. I don't have, any faith that Bruce Arians will alter his offensive strategy and will, you know, change things up to, to avoid, you know, Tom Brady taking big hits against a a front four that can rush without too much blitz. Mm -hmm. And I am as good as that offensive line can be for the bucks. I don't know that they'll hold up against that defense. And then, you know, you have these deep, deep passes that they love to run. They, They don't have a ton of balance. And then conversely, you know, I think Sean Payton just sort of has a huge coaching edge over uh, Todd Bowles and, and everybody else on that Buccaneers coaching staff. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've never understood that can't beat a, a team three times thing. Um, I would imagine that if you beat a team twice, you're probably better. That seems like it's two pretty good indicators of the fact that you might be better than that football team. Uh, you brought up two-thirds number. I think it's 14 and seven. Um, specifically, according to ESPN stats and info, so or maybe fourteen and eight, but in that ballpark. So, you know, I, you know, when I think about what might change, I think Tom Brady's fair, and Tom Brady could play better. Not out of the question. That offense has been better during the last few weeks of the year, and I thought Tom Brady was very good against Washington. I think that was a game where, you know, I was going and saying, okay, I think the Bucks are going to win, but I think it's going to be a low-scoring game. And I think that Tom Brady might struggle with this pass rush. And neither of those things were true. It was a high scoring game because Taylor Heineke got going for Washington, but also Tom Brady was very good, like had good numbers and had a couple of drops where it could have been an even better game. Um, did okay against pressure. Not great, but um, certainly better than, you know, the numbers seem to indicate Tom Brady does typically against pressure. And I think there might be a level of comfort with this offense where they might just be better at it now having a full season of practice uh, than they were in week one or they were even in mid-season. So I, my other concern here, Will, of thinking about why the Saints might not, you know, pull a, a pretty significant victory is that I don't know what you thought about the Saints offense last week, but against Chicago, a good defense, not a great defense, I would say. They did not look good for the vast majority of that football game. No, they did not. And I, I mean, maybe this is me doing a little confirmation bias myself. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that with the Saints, you're talking about a team that, you know, Drew Brees coming back from a cracked injury, a cracked ribs injury. Uh, you're talking about a cracked, sure. Um, <laughs> too, too many connotations to even delve into. <laughs> uh, you're talking about, um, you know, Alvin Kamara, like, I'll put it this way. I'm not sure what the number is, but I would guess it's less than 15% of the snaps that Alvin Kamara, Michael Thomas, and Drew Brees played together this year. Yeah, it's very low for sure. Yeah, and if I just think that you can kind of look at week 17, even without Thomas then, and then that wild card game against the Bears, you know, as, as you know, a very good defense. They finished uh, top, they finished eighth in DVOA. 
as sort of a warm-up game where things might get going. But I, I don't think the Saints are going to – the Saints don't – the Saints don't come in and just light you up with these deep balls all over the field like it's Star Wars offense circa 2009. I mean, they're, they're more dink and dunk. They want to get the balls in the ball in Kamara's hands and Michael Thomas's hands mm-hmm. on these shorter passing routes. They're not going to ask Drew Brees to, to. I don't think they want to have him to take a bunch of hits. I don't think they wanted Dominican Sue blitzing in there and just, you know, just like wrecking shop because that's how you get more cracked ribs. So <laughs> I, I don't know necessarily a blowout, but I do think the Saints' offense will look better than it did last week. And that we see sort of a progression as we start to realize, all right, maybe the Saints do have enough this year uh, to actually make that push. I mean, do you think that the Saints are making a deep push into the postseason, or do you think that the Buccaneers pull the upset here? I have the Saints winning by a touchdown. So covering the three, winning the game. I think that it's a back. I, I think they, I think they could blow them out. I don't think they will. I just think there's an edge here for Sean Payton against that coaching staff and he knows it. And it feels like when Sean Payton knows he has an edge and knows he like, he like, I don't know. It just feels like this is a game where, you know, he's like heavy Sean Payton fist pumps on the sideline. It's, it's kind of what I'm envisioning in my head. So you're going uh, to finish up here. You're going Packers, Ravens, Chiefs, Saints. Yes. And then I think I'm going to go, it, it, not that you asked, but please Saints, Ravens, Saints Ravens Super Bowl. Interesting. I had, I certainly did not have Saints um, anybody before the season. I had, I think, want to say Chiefs Cowboys, which I Colts uh, Cowboys. I mean, it's Good it's rough. look it's looking rough. You know, the Cowboys are um, can always launch a late comeback, but I'm a little skeptical the Cowboys <laughs> are going to be making a Super Bowl appearance this year. Um, we will have to wait and see, but uh, I. Before this, before the playoffs started, when I had a chance to reconsider my options, I chose Saints versus Chiefs, and I think I'm going to stick with that. Uh, I hope I am fine with that. I'm also fine with Chiefs Bucks. Um, any any of the matchups that lend itself to fireworks and high ratings for CBS Sports <laughs> would be fine. Well, well, if people want to check out all the work you do for CBS Sports, where can they do that? Uh, we have the Pick 6 podcast, of course, a daily NFL podcast. Uh, lots of analysis and mirth along the way. People can check that out on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get it, uh, at, on Twitter, at Will Brinson, and, of course, uh, all of my work at CBSSports.com. Awesome. Well, well, you know it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. It's, uh, it's always fun, Bill, and uh, talk to you soon, buddy. <clears throat> ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One. As always, love having Will Brinson of CBS on the show. Check out all of Will's stuff. One of the best in the business, like I always say. Guys, we have, I'm uh, counting in my head, four, two, seven football games left this year. Crazy to think we got this far. Still a bunch of football left. Hope you guys enjoyed this weekend. Hope you guys are staying healthy and doing well. And more audio coming next week. So thanks so much for listening.